Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, 1 Thessalonians as we uh, continue our series. Last week, we uh, introduced the book, thank you, David, and uh, introduced the book of 1 Thessalonians uh, by looking at the planting of the church in Acts, and uh, we talked about its culture and our culture. Uh, we talked about some of the conflicts that they were having and conflicts that we have today or challenges, more specifically, and then we talked about the church then and now. And uh, today we're digging into the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, and we're in the first few verses, so it'll be a little bit more uh, continued introduction as we kind of look at the big picture of the entire book, but I'm really excited about the series, and um, so we are going to dig uh, right in this morning. You know, sometimes we, uh, we debate, we discuss, we plan about what the different ministries and directions and all these things of are the church, and we don't always uh, agree on that. And sometimes we maybe lose focus as a church. The other day we were at uh, our granddaughter's three-year-old, three-year birthday party, and uh, it, was, it was a big shindig. These things are, I don't remember them being that huge when my kids were little, but there was uh, families from both sides and, and uh, cousins, and there was... Uh, friends of Jackie and Jordan's from high school and church and school. There was uh, um, friends of theirs from church. And uh, so there's all these different groups of people there. But we all knew what we were there for. We were there for a three-year-old birthday party, uh, Mickey Mouse-themed birthday party. And at one point in time, uh, my daughter is struggling to, uh, she did not plan well for the pinata. And so she came out and said, I don't know where I'm, Dad, where am I going to do this pinata? And I, I'm deferring. I'm not part of this. But there was no discussion in the group as she was trying to figure out how to do the pinata. There was no discussion of whether we should have a pinata. There was no discussion about whether the pinata went with the Mickey Mouse theme or not. There was no discussion on the morals of a pinata. There was just a pinata that needed to be beaten. And so people scurried around to make sure that the, the pinata got hung. And sometimes in church, we uh, are going to do something, and then instead we get all hung up with the discussion of whether we should, could, did, whatever, and all those kind of things. And so one of the things that impressed me about the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, remember, Paul comes in, he, he is witnessing in the city of Thessalonica, it, it, an uproar happens, and Paul is, is whisked away, and he's off on other missionary journeys doing other things. And he kind of is thinking to himself, I wonder whatever happened in Thessalonica. So he sends some Timothy and some other people to go kind of look and see what's happening. They come back to Paul and they said, there's a thriving church there. Some really good things are happening. And so Paul writes them this letter. And the reason that he knows there's a thriving church there is kind of this overarching theme of Thessalonians is Paul has heard about their faith, he has heard about their love, and he's heard about their hope. And as he reflects on that in, in 1 Thessalonians, their faith, their love, and their hope, these are things that show that the church is thriving and they're things that should be thriving in our life. So let's, I'm going to go ahead and read all of chapter one since it's only 10 verses, but we're really going to just focus on the first few verses this morning. Paul, uh, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church 
of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Acacia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Chasa, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that, you, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. As we look at uh, this introduction of faith, love, and hope, we're going to focus on this faith, love, and hope in each of the points this morning as it relates to Paul's prayer as it relates to Paul's thankfulness, and as it relates to the Trinity. So Paul starts with this prayer. And uh, he says in verse 2, we give thanks to God. We're constantly mentioning in our prayers, remembering before our God, our Father. This is what we've been praying. Uh, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. I think there's a few things that Paul's prayer reveals to us. First, it reveals his pastoral love for the church. Um, he, he is thankful. He is constantly thinking about this church. Um, you see where his heart is. It, it would have been very easy for Paul. He, he had a rough go in, in Thessalonica. He's driven out of the city. In fact, the next city he goes to, remember, was Berea, where he got a much better reception. And he goes on, and he's planning other churches it would have been really easy for Paul to go, man, that was just, that didn't work over there. That, that was rough. But he doesn't. He's, he's got this heart for the church. So this prayer reveals his pastoral love for the church. Uh, Paul uses these three words uh, throughout his writing. Uh, faith, uh, faith, love, and hope. So here's a few examples uh, from Galatians chapter 5. It says, uh, for, though the, uh, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither, uh, um, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So we have faith, hope, faith again, and love. Next one. In Colossians, we always thank God, the Father of the Lord Jesus. Here again, Paul is praising uh, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, as I'm doing this, this passage 
here, it's really, I'm, I'm using the order that Paul uses here, which is uh, faith, love, and hope, which is hard to say because most of us are familiar with uh, 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So these concepts of faith, love, and hope go throughout Paul's letter. He uses a slightly different order than we're familiar with in that first Corinthian passage. In that first Corinthian passage, remember the Corinthians are fighting and he's like, guys need to love one another. In the Thessalonica church, they're not fighting, but, but there's a hope issue. Some have heard that maybe they missed Jesus' return. Some are confused about that and they're going through, as our, our banner says, much affliction. And so Paul focuses here a little bit more on hope. In Paul's prayer, the beginning of this letter, when we see Paul to the church and we give thanks, Paul is following a very simple pattern of the day in which they wrote letters. And it wasn't uncommon even for generals and different things to start a letter this way and have kind of a prayer uh, at the beginning. Where it's different at these Prayers of thanks would be about somebody's physical or financial health. But Paul's prayer of thanksgiving is all about their spiritual health. And it gives us kind of a slightly different focus of his pastoral love for the church. So Paul's prayer reveals his pastoral love for the church. And second, it also reveals his purpose for the letter. Paul's letters kind of have a very general pattern. Uh, many of them open up in prayer, and those prayers kind of give you a hint to what he's about to talk about. And then Paul will take a chapter or two or three at the in first half of his letter, and it'll be very doctrinal. He'll talk about the gospel. He'll talk about the sovereignty of God. He'll talk about election. He'll talk about these kind of deep truths. And then Paul will have an, a therefore, or another prayer that will launch into the practical aspect of how we live out the doctrinal things that he's talked about. And so Paul's prayer begins to tell us a little bit about the purpose of his letter. He's going to talk about this faith that leads to holiness. Now, this is kind of interesting. If you look at this prayer, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfast hope. And then his transition happens in chapter three at the end, those last three verses, 11, 12, and 13. He says, now may the God of our Father himself, our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love, there's that word again, for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with the saints. And that's that hope again, the coming of the Lord. And so in the middle prayer, we don't have faith, love, and hope. We have holiness, love, and hope. But when you think about that, it makes sense. Paul is talking about our faith. Now he's talking about how our faith works itself out into holiness. And he ends the book in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and following with another prayer. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. There's the holiness again. Completely 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord. There's that hope again. And so Paul is talking about how this faith works into holiness. That's the purpose of his letter. Second, we see this idea of love. And specifically, we'll see in just a minute that it focuses on brotherly love, how we treat one another. And, and we'll go into a little bit more depth than that. But I, when I think of love, I mean, what's the result of love? Paul says in um, chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do it more and more and to aspire to live quietly. It's kind of interesting. It just it doesn't seem like well, that's where that's going to go. But loving others leads us to living a quiet life. We'll get into more of that as we go through uh, the book. And then this idea of hope, hope in the return of Christ that leads to a steadfastness, a, a security. So Paul's prayer reminds us uh, of his pastoral love. It reminds us of his, his purpose. And I think also it challenges us in the way that we pray. I don't know, uh, you can just kind of think about this yourself, the last few prayers that you prayed to God. Maybe you prayed that God would bless the food and the hands that prepared it. Uh, maybe you prayed for some healing or prayed for God to, to give you wisdom. Uh, but sometimes when I read Paul's prayers, I go, man, I'm really kind of doing some wimpy prayers. Um, he really challenges us to deepen our prayer life. Um, when have you remembered in prayer somebody else's work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness? One of the things I think that stands out again, in prayer, in his prayer and in his introduction, and we're going to have a whole other point on it, is that he prays with thanksgiving. Paul, Paul is very thankful in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And so what stood out to me in chapter 1 is that we have an ordinary people who are going through much affliction, both the church and Paul, and it's leading to great joy and a, continue, a contagious faith. Paul is thankful that they are going through what they're going through because it's producing results. And there's also a whole another road we could go down with how does Paul, who's far away, know that this church is established and they're on the right track? Well, there's assurance of their salvation in the fact that faith, love, and hope are evident in their lives. So, man, I, I'm wrestling with my, my faith. I, am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? Well, are we growing in faith? Are we growing in holiness? Are we growing in love for one another? Is our hope abounding? I mean, these are things that show us that we're walking with the Lord. So faith, love, and hope as it relates to Paul's prayer. And then second, as it relates to Paul's thankfulness. Paul is thankful for the churches. And, and look at it again in verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith. Maybe that stands out to you a little bit. Those aren't, in the church, those aren't two words that we often put together. Work of faith. So let's look at each of these words. Faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Hebrews chapter 11. I don't have to try to come up with a difficult definition of it. 
the writer of Hebrews defined it. Faith is this, the assurance. The assurance of things hoped for. Some of you have a, an old King James. You got the old King James in here today? It says, the substance. The substance. Uh, that just doesn't, that doesn't make as much sense to me. Some other translations, assurance, conviction. One translation, reality. The idea of substance, the substance, is the reality. It's the reality of the things that we hope for. Faith is the reality of the forgiveness of sins. Faith is the reality of the gospel in our life. The Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourself. Faith is from God. Faith is something that's alive. It's active. It results in something. Work. Let me say a few things about work in this passage. Most importantly, it's singular. I know it seems kind of odd thing to say, but it doesn't say works of faith. It says work of faith. And so what Paul is saying here is that it, one person wrote, it's an undivided whole, a continuous career of activity. The apostle Paul has in mind the whole of one's life an increasing faithfulness to the obedience of God's word. Listen, are you as holy as you should be? No. Do you know everything that you should know at this point in your life? No. Are there things that you should be changing in your life? I don't care how old you are. Yes. Faith results in a continuous growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a work that's happening over a lifetime. It's not a means of salvation, but it's a result of salvation. Look at this work in the passage. In verse 8, it says, For not only uh, has the word of the Lord uh, sounded forth from you, he goes on, but your faith in God has gone forth. Faith is something as a work that it, it goes out. In verse 9, it says, For they themselves report to us the kind of reception that we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This work of faith is a, is a changing. It's a turning in the way that we do things. It's a repentance. So faith... Faith is what we believe. Faith is the gospel. This work that he is thankful for is that he sees it growing. Second, he is thankful for the labor of love. The labor of love. Now, in our English, um, the words work and labor are very similar. In the Greek, they're different. Labor is much more intense um, than the word work by implication of uh, the idea of labor. It has more pain, weariness. So it's an interesting question here. What is the hard, painstaking work of love referred to? When we look at the context of 1 Thessalonians, um, this, is what, this is how Paul works it out throughout the book. And we'll go through these things later, but just as a whole... It's the love that we have 
for the brothers. Chapter 3, verse 12. We read this a little bit. And may the, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. He's talking about the church. Those in the body. Now, let me point a couple things out about this love. Paul is saying that the way that the gospel love in our life is going to work its way out is that it's going to grow in our love for one another in the church. And the word that Paul uses to describe that growth of love for one another is painstaking, labor, difficult work. Ow, ouch, Paul. Shouldn't that be easy? Shouldn't that just be, I mean, if I'm having difficulty loving somebody in the church, then surely something's wrong with them, right? Paul says, look, this is going to be a difficult work. Learning to get along, love one another. And he says, you're doing a great job. Paul would have been a lousy Little League coach. You're doing really good. Work harder. Do more. So he wants, he wants to see the church grow in that. So love is the love for the brothers. Okay? You've heard the, the saying, you know, spending eternity. How does it go with the uh, spending eternity with the saints above that will be glory? Living with them here is a different story, right? It's something like that. I forget exactly how the rhyme goes. We, yeah, we get, yeah, I know I'm supposed to love them, but I'm hoping that's going to be a heaven working it out thing. And Paul says, no, it's a real hard work thing now. But he goes on to say in verse uh, um, 12 there, he says, um, increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So that love should overflow, not just in the church, but to the community as well, for all people. And I think that sometimes we, we, we can, you know, we talk about the balance of this. You know, do we love people in the church? Do we love people in the community? Do we love people in the community more than we love people in the church? I've told the story before, but my first church... This lady was angry at me. Every church, uh, somebody's been angry at me, but this particular time, and, and she said, she came to my office and she said, sometimes I think you love the people out there more than you love the people in here. And I kind of took it as a compliment. I don't think you love people outside the church. But, right, we, we have to balance that. And then, that's not all. In chapter four, verse nine, he says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need uh, for anyone to write to you, for yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Now, look at throughout Macedonia. Now, he's not just talking about the love in the church in Thessalonica, but he's talking about the love for other Christians in other churches. It goes, it goes out beyond that. And then in chapter 5, uh, verse 12, he says, For we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So we're to love our brothers. We're to love 
Uh, all people and people in our community were supposed to love brothers in other churches and were even supposed to have love for spiritual leaders. So that's the love that, that Paul is referring to. He says, when I, when I look at the church, he says, man, I see your work of faith, that you are growing in this faith. And he says, I see this painstaking love that you have for one another, for those around you, for Christians in other places, and for your leaders, and I'm, I'm excited about that. And then third, he talks about the steadfastness of hope. I just think there's two different directions in which we have hope. Um, First Thessalonians uh, is... Um, an important book to me and my personal um, growing in the Lord. Uh, I was in high school um, and it was our custom in our youth group and our discipleship groups that each month we would read through a book of the Bible. And the way that we would do that is our youth pastor had it broken up into 30 days or whatever it was, just kind of, kind of like our prayer, our, our Bible reading. And uh, we, would, we would read it, and then we would do some questions, observation, interpretation, application. And we would write those down, and then when we got into our groups, we would share them. And so we were going through First Thessalonians, sometime my junior or senior year, I can't exactly remember when, uh, but I can remember where I was. I was visiting my, my grandma and grandpa, and I was laying on their living room floor. I can still see the purple, dark purple carpet, maroon. I think it was the actual color. It looked pretty purple. And I was laying there, and I had brought my youth group stuff, and I was doing my devotion. And I came to chapter 4, verse 13. And it says, but... We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Okay, now, throughout the Bible, it often uses the word asleep. It, it means dead. But the Bible uses asleep for a reason. Why? Because we don't believe they're dead forever, right? We believe there's a resurrection. We're sleeping, in a sense. That you may not grieve as others who uh, do who have no hope. Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so our hope, I said, goes two ways. It goes back, and it, it refers to the gospel. We have hope in Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again. And our hope goes Forward, and we have hope in a resurrection of the dead to Christ. My grandparents were very special to me, and I was doing the observation, interpretation, application for this process. And, you know, as a kid, my grandparents were important, and the thought of them, you know, I, they're older, they're grandparents, which now doesn't seem that old, but they were then. <laughs> that was kind of scary thought of them dying. And I, I have to admit, it was kind of a fear of mine. And so I remember writing this out. And somewhere sitting on their floor, I, I wrote that one day, 
my grandparents would die. And then I couldn't overly mourn that because I know that I will see them again. It's the application of a kid in high school dealing with one of his fears. Now about six or nine months later, my grandfather was diagnosed with cancer. And probably a year and a half of that later, he was gone. And God prepared me because I was faithful to be in his word on a regular basis. And he dealt with one of my fears with the truth of hope, that we hope in the gospel and we hope in the resurrection of the dead. Now, losing somebody is very difficult, but I, I look back at that moment. There's so many different faithfulness to God's words, faithfulness to to, to being in daily devotions, faithfulness to applying it to our lives. All these things come from this passage for me. And it has to do with this hope. This hope could be translated as endurance inspired by hope, this steadfastness of hope. One person wrote this. This statement, steadfastness of hope, indicates an endurance that happens throughout the Christian life as we are under trials or as we journey through the life of faith. In other words, the more things that we go through and we trust God through, our hope grows. Now, I've said this before, and I'll I'll keep saying it because I just believe it's true from the way that I read God's word. You are in one of three stages of life. You just came through a trial. Praise God, he brought you through. You are currently in a trial, or you are awaiting your next trial. It's just, just, just life. And I don't know whether it's physical or relational or financial or spiritual. I don't know what it is. I'm just saying that, that these things keep coming because they grow our faith, our love, and our hope in Jesus Christ. We did a series a, a couple years ago on hope and uh, I want to make sure that we're focused as we head into uh, the rest of this book on the gospel. And so this is from a sermon a few years ago, five key terms that summarize our salvation that I stole from John MacArthur and then I added one. When Paul is talking about the gospel in all these different books, he uses these different words. Justification, big theological word. Justification reminds us the sinner, which all of us are. Stand before God guilty. And we're declared righteous. Now, look, all of us are sinners. But in Christ, when we trust him, when we put our faith in him, that guilty person stands before a holy God and he is declared righteous righteous. Not because you've done anything, not because you've changed, but because he is changing you. The second word is redemption. Redemption. In redemption, the sinner stands before God a slave. We just talked about this a couple weeks. Specifically, a slave to sin. And he is granted freedom by a ransom Jesus paid for. We have been redeemed. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin anymore. It means that we are no longer a slave to it. The third word is forgiveness. 
And forgiveness, the sinner stands before God a debtor. We have a debt that we cannot pay. And the debt, having been paid by Jesus Christ, is forgiven. I don't know if you've ever had a a debt relieved, uh, but it's a wonderful thing. When somebody says, you know what? I have to pay that. My dad uh, gave me a car to drive in high school. It was really wonderful. And then my senior year, he said, you got to buy your own car. He said, and I found one for you. And uh, it was a a 68 VW Bug. I think I pushed it as much as I did drive it. (laughs) So we put a new engine in it. And then since we had a new engine, we put a new paint job on it. And then it needed a new clutch, and a new this, and new tires. And all of a sudden, this 500 VW Bug, I had like two grand into this thing, or three grand. And my dad kept paying for it, but he kept writing down what I owed him. (laughs) And now I'm graduating high school with what, you know, for a kid in high school, you know, a couple grand in debt, it was a little overwhelming. And so for graduation, my dad forgave my debt. It was wonderful. Wish we could have done that with like a Corvette or something, but you know, whatever. (laughs) But the sinner stands before God, and we have a debt that we can't pay. Christ paid for it. The next word is reconciliation. The sinner, each one of us, stands before God as an enemy and becomes a friend. Many of us read through the book, Forgiven to Forgive. And I don't know how many times this word reconciliation came up in in the six weeks, but it was a number of times. We have been reconciled, therefore we should reconcile with others. The next word is adoption. The sinner stands before God a stranger, and he becomes family. This is the gospel. This is what our hope is in. In in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is dealing with another problem. That's a hope issue. So in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That word caught up, I have the Greek there for you in... in, uh, In your notes, the believer is not left behind, but is caught up with the Lord where he will always be. I don't know where you are this morning, but maybe you need to be reminded that um, you're a sinner and you are guilty. But when you stand before God and put your faith in him, you're declared righteous. Maybe you're standing before God and and you feel like you're enslaved to sin. I want to remind you that in Christ you have been redeemed. You have been set free. Maybe your past is just overwhelming to you and you think, how can God ever forgive me? I have such a huge debt. And Jesus said, I paid it in full. Maybe you are feeling like You are at odds with God, and I want to remind you that you've been reconciled. Maybe you feel like a stranger on the outside, and I want to remind you that you've become family. 
Maybe you feel like you've been left behind, and I want to remind you that you will be caught up and will be with him forever. Steadfastness of hope. Last thing that I, I wanted to point out to you this morning is just how, how much the Trinity just seems to just echo in this passage. Again, in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he chose you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the, uh, in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So we have the Trinity just kind of echoing through this passage. The doctrine of the Trinity is one of the highest and greatest mysteries of the Bible. The Bible presents that one true God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Westminster Larger Catechism explains they are the same substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. This statement points out that each member of the Trinity is equally God in every respect, yet is distinct in their person. So in this passage, we note that the Father administers our salvation. It's from God. He's the administrator. He's, he's the planner. He's, he's in charge of it. Now, we can get into the distinctions of what it means to be chosen by God, but just know that he's administrating one way or the other. But how did it get done? The Son accomplished it on the cross. The Father administers it, the Son accomplishes it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his glory. Jesus worked out our salvation on the cross. The Father administers it, the Son accomplishes it, and the Spirit applies it. In fact, he mentions here the work of the Spirit in conviction. You know, sometimes we're afraid to share Christ with people. And most of the reason we're afraid to share Christ is we think we're going to irritate them or they're going to reject it. I want to remind you that it's not our job to convict people of sin. It's not our job to convince them. It's our job to share. And the Spirit does the work of convicting. Spirit does the work of convincing. He says, look, the Holy Spirit did that in you. Paul doesn't say, hey, if you remember how great I was, I was a really great preacher. He doesn't say that. So here's some application and action for us this morning. As a way of introducing this, this theme of faith and love and hope, um, as it relates to Paul's prayer life, how is your prayer life? Is it all that it could be? Maybe we could just be encouraged this morning to, to pray with a deeper understanding uh, and pray the gospel over people. I, I think that's really what Paul is doing. Is your faith, love, and hope secure in the working out of your salvation? Some of you are struggling. Am I a part of the church? Am I adopted into his family? Have I been forgiven? Look, we accept the truth 
that Jesus, that God loved all, that Jesus died for all, and that we have put our faith in the truth, doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle. But is that faith, love, and hope, is it growing? Are you seeing the the work of God in your life? What are you thankful for this morning? Does it go beyond the physical or the financial? I'm not talking about counting your blessings. Are you thankful for the way that you see the gospel being applied in your life? You know, it's, it's this constant struggle we know that we love God. And we know, we know that this is, this, this is the Bible and it's true. And we know that it's love God, love people. But somehow we wrestle to say, I want to love God and then I want to find a group of people that I feel comfortable loving. And the church is just a group of, <laughs> sorry, misfits. People who are saved by grace, people who are broken, who are becoming a family. And it's hard work. Are you thankful for the people that you're doing the journey with? Are you thankful that they're also wrestling with the gospel? Are you thankful that they're growing? It's it's one thing to, to count your blessings. It's another thing to take those things that are really difficult and say, I'm thankful for those too thankful for those people. I'm thankful for those difficulties because it's the working out of this faith and hope and love that gives us an assurance that we're in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this morning and for digging into your word and being challenged. Uh, Thank you for your table um, and the proclamation of the gospel this morning. May we be a church that is growing in our faith, our understanding of the gospel and our application of it. May we be a church that's growing in our love uh, for you and for one another, even when it's difficult. May we be a church that is living in hope uh, of the hope of the gospel and the hope of your return. And uh, Lord, may we live in that so much that other people see it and that it goes out from this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.